Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, brought to you by Global Scholars. I'm Stan Wallace, your host, and today's topic is Higher Education 101, How Universities Came to Be and How They Work. My guest today is Dr. Liam Atchison. Liam is a historian who, for many years, was a university and seminary professor and dean. He was also the founding editor of the literary journal Mars Hill Review and co-editor of the book Civil Religion and American Christianity. His research has been in the history of ideas with a particular interest in politics and education. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's nice to be here. To begin with, where did the idea of the university even come from? What was the initial vision for this thing we now call university? I think throughout recorded history, there's been a, there's been a desire to educate, especially educate the next generation. I know we have examples in the Far East and ancient times of education for the purpose of preparing people to serve in the in the government class. Then, um, of course, we're all familiar with ancient Greece, aren't we? And uh, the schools of the peripatetic philosophers and other schools that would spring up uh, around that time. And, of course, there are Jesus and his disciples. Sure. Which is another another uh, ancient learning model, but nothing really like what we have in the university where we have preparation leading up to a time for people in the specific age group to go and decide what they're going to do for the rest of their life, what they're going to do for the rest of their lives, which even that statement I just made is loaded, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I I think we have to understand that uh, universities really have European origins. They really come from Europe. Okay. From most of the evidence that we have now, probably the, the best origin of all of these things came in the cathedral school experiments of the 11th century in Europe. Ah. And the cathedral schools were an effort to take very, actually take very young students, much younger than our university students today, and begin to prepare them for service to the church. So they had these cathedral schools, and it was an experiment. And uh, rightly so, they began to look for uh, the best teachers that they could find. And you know, would attach themselves to students for these purposes in the, in the cathedrals. But it, it was different than the way we would view these kinds of things today because uh, these great teachers who began to emerge to teach in these cathedral schools didn't have a concept of loyalty necessarily to the town they were in or the cathedral. And so uh, if they were popular, they would enroll more students. If they were popular enough and they weren't getting enough attention or enough money, where they were, then they would take it on the road. These kinds of things began to began to cause problems. If you got a good teacher like like uh, Notre Dame did uh, in Paris when they got Peter Abelard, he was one of those people who was a hotshot who could take it on the road if he wanted to, and he'd have the students go with him. And what this did was underscore the problem, which was you had people who wanted these kinds of educational institutions uh, because they they were looking toward the future, and you had to put up with celebrities. And sometimes uh, there were people who were providing good instruction, but they weren't celebrities. And so they were maybe taken advantage of, whereas the celebrities were catered to. So what happened in the cathedral schools is that there were two groups of people. There were students and there were teachers. And in some cases, the students got together and said, we don't like the, you know, we're being treated in a rotten way by whatever it is that are either 
the conditions of the part of town the university is in or what the university is doing as it matriculates us or the fact that we can't get the professor we want to teach us. Uh, And so they would band together to protect one another against whatever it is, the incipient university or the cathedral school to get what they wanted. And so that's where the universities came from. They came from either the demands of students or faculty to have certain kinds of structures in place that they could count on and it would be fair to their different groups. So in Bologna in Italy, it was students who banded together to make demands of the university. And Bologna was the, was the first university. It was um, 1088. So we're still in the 11th century there. It's right out of the cathedral schools into, the, into Bologna. And then 60 years later, University of Paris is founded. And its teachers banded together to protect their interests and to control their, the students. So from those things, we have, we have universities Intellectually, all this is being fueled by the rediscovery of Aristotle. What had happened when the Roman Empire was destroyed, communication was disrupted, connection to libraries and the old educational system is disconnected. And so now they're discovering the ancient authors and they begin to study them and and, uh, see how these things fit with the teaching of the church. And so the university begins to teach uh, philosophy and theology. And, of course, they added other things. I won't go into the trivium and quadrivium because, you know, that's a story for another day. But that was the curriculum of the university. And basically, they trained people in theology and law. Uh, No engineering schools, no business schools, no women's studies programs, just theology, philosophy. I'm kind of putting those together. And and law were were the main subjects. Universities began to be established in different parts of Europe. And began to have a, these universities began to have an impact, an impact on historical events that were going on around them as it grew. So by 1450, what most historians think is about 50 years into the Renaissance, there are 29 universities, only 29 throughout Europe. By 1500, there were 57. By 1625, there were 75. And by 1800, there were 143. So That seems like, well, that's a lot of growth, but in 400 years, only 143 universities. Contrast that with now thousands throughout the world and quite a bit more than 143, I imagine, in Europe as well. But most historians, as they look at the universities, say from the year 1200, when Paris and Bologna uh, are operating uh, in Europe, until about 1800, over a period of 600 years, even with all the Reformation activity, very little change in the university structure until things changed and that really changed in the 19th century. So talk about the change. What happened? How did they change? Why did they change? And what are the results of those changes today? Well, probably the the biggest change came, the university began to respond intellectual way to the uh, scientific and industrial revolutions. Finally, up until the 19th century uh, universities are, what we would call very conservative movements. You know, I tend to see that university professors are people who don't like change very much. Finally, in the 19th century, there was a man named uh, William von Humboldt who founded a university called the University of Berlin in 1809. And he had been influenced by um, 
especially the ideas of Schleiermacher, Frederick Schleiermacher, uh, who held the, an ideal that we still hold today called academic freedom. That is, you ought to be able to teach what you think is true without fear of uh, recrimination. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a different way of approaching education that would fuel intellectual inquiry, a scientific model, and also, you know, encouraged by the changes that they were beginning to see in terms of the Industrial Revolution that was beginning in Britain and spreading throughout Europe. He used seminars where students would get in a room and professors would hold forth on whatever they did. Laboratories where experimentation would take place. These were all new things for universities because universities were still pursuing preparation of people in the humanities now, which are like the, you know, the liberal arts. They didn't have, uh, didn't have engineering and science. Science now, for the first time, is being distinguished from philosophy. And maybe you could say something about that. The scientific uh, method is beginning to be used. And so universities are at the forefront of now incorporating science as part of liberal arts and sciences. And so this is a very different reality for students they are now having laboratories to go work in and seminars to discuss with other students as opposed to, what, before this transition, it was mostly the student with the professor as a a, a sort of a mentor, just helping them learn what needs to be understood in the field? Yeah, and then another thing that Humboldt did was he standardized advanced degrees. He's the one who standardized what we call today the Ph.D., Martin Luther, for example, in the 16th century, is a, he's a doctor of theology. Mm-hmm. And that meant whatever, you know, had a kind of a standard meeting throughout universities, very slow moving, uh, approved by your peers, that, that sort of thing. But Humboldt is going to standardize this and give, say, this is what it looks like, and this is what you have to do to achieve it. So they created a PhD. And what happened was uh, something that also tends to happen today is a lot of students who were in the PhD track uh, left before they finished. But even though they may not have had the degree in hand, they still had the qualifications that they needed for what the university was training people for, which was to be teachers of lower levels, uh, to be uh, people who, and to be people who are public servants, like diplomats and people who work in the civil service. So this is really the first time, in a very subtle way, the university is considered a place where people are actually training for jobs. Ah. Okay, that's not the old idea. The old idea, and the old idea persisted even past the, you know, the 19th century. This is, a, this is an anecdote, but my father was the first person in his family to go to, to go to college. And he went before World War II, even though he was also a World War II veteran. He never got to take advantage of the GI Bill, which I'll talk about later. So he, he went to college uh, basically not to get a degree, but to have a training in basically liberal arts as a precursor for going on to dental school, which was, was what he really wanted to do. And uh, they were required, dental, that dental school that he went to in the 1940s required them to uh, have a, a university background, not a pre-dentistry background, but a university background where they had general studies, become educated people, for one, and also to show that they, had, they could do this kind of, the kind of work that the university required. So... When I went to college later on, my dad would talk to me about going to college. He was more concerned with me becoming an educated person. He didn't think in terms of, and of course, I'm going to tell your listeners that I'm, I'm older than you are, Stan. I'm pretty old, so I can remember these things. 
But anyway, his idea was, I want you to go to college and become a more well-rounded person. He didn't think of me going to college in terms of, what are you going to major in because you need to get a job? Although that came into some conversations later. Sure. That's what they believed. That's uh, what was generally believed. Let me just clarify. So the, the, the old school view was education is a means to becoming the right type of person. And it shifted to education is about being equipped for a, for a, a trade, to have a skill. Yes. And when was that tipping point, would you say? Well, it depends on where you're talking. I'd say that on the continent, of course, Humboldt's German model begins to triumph the 1870s, 1880s. And it took a little longer in the United States for that to happen. But eventually, it was already, the seeds of it were already there in something that happened in the 1860s that we can talk about later. But, and if you want, we can shift to the, we can also shift to the U.S. in this discussion as well. Well, sure. Let's talk about that. What, what was it that caused the shift to take a little longer here? Americans are very um, practical. And so uh, colleges and universities uh, tended to be pretty small. For example, in the year 1900, there are only about 160,000 college students. Wow. By today, they're 20 million. Contrast that. Of course, the United States is much bigger, but still 160,000 weren't, weren't very much. And these practical-minded people in the United States uh, would just be a special kind of person with particular uh, aptitude and also some means behind them to be able to go to college you'd have to have a patron of some kind to, to help you do that. And that persisted, that persisted in the United States for some time. But the seeds of it were undone by something called the Morrill Act in the 1860s. This is the first kind of breakthrough. I think probably influenced by some German ideas about higher education began to infiltrate. And also, in you know, kind of German ideas and Enlightenment ideas about nature, that sort of thing. It was very difficult for people to think about sending students off to study English and philosophy and literature, but they could send them off to an agricultural college. And uh, in fact, that is, that's what happened. As soon as the Morrill Act came, came along, you had the establishment of what we today call state universities. And the state universities were places where uh, the government set aside land and therefore funds for universities to be established or existing universities to be transformed into state universities, which specialized in engineering and agriculture. Now, some of them, like my alma mater, Kansas State, which, by the way, was the first land-grant university, beat Michigan State by a matter of hours, I think, had uh, some administrators there who didn't settle for uh, engineering and agriculture, they thought that farmers ought to be as well educated as anybody else. And so they created part of their curriculum to be the humanities so that these were these farmers would be gentlemen farmers who not only understood the scientific aspects of how to take care of their land, but they also understood Shakespeare and had a, had a sprinkling of philosophy and some of those kinds of things. So, but along come these uh, universities and the government also had requirements for them, too. For example, later on, if you went to a land-grant university, you were also, as a, as a male, you were also automatically enrolled in ROTC. So you had to take military training as well with everything that you do. So you see that some land-grant universities like Texas A&M have these military components to them because depending on where you were, the military science part of being an engineer or a farmer are significant as well. 
there were also, uh, of course, high schools that were land-grant high schools, too, and they tended to have ROTC programs as well. But mainly, we're talking about state universities. So anytime you see, it's a good guess, anytime you see in a title of an institution, something state university or something state college or A&M or A&I, something like that, it's a good bet that it's a land-grant institution with its roots going way back into the 19th century. And those universities then uh, combine these Enlightenment ideals uh, that are influencing uh, the German model of higher education. And just to give you an example, the motto of my alma mater is rule by obeying nature's laws. If I were to think of a phrase that is typifies a land-grant institution, that would be it. We're going to do things, we're going to study things according to nature's laws, and we're going to do our bit to uh, bring science and scientific inquiry and scientific method into preparing people to change our society or to serve our, probably to serve our society is more of their idea initially. And that's the land grant institute, the land grant act called the moral act that came about in 1862. And I can see how that would change significantly what higher education was conceived of. Uh, and, and you talked about this this broader shift from the the cathedral schools and the early universities to the German model and, and more of the regimented approach and, and so on and so forth. There are some uh, obvious challenges to that, but I'm sure there are some benefits to that as well. So could you speak a little bit to what you see as the pros and cons of the shift to the German model and its dominance now in in, in the approach to higher education? Well, I think the pro is that it legitimizes all kinds of pursuits that people have in life. There is a profound respect that one who receives a university education still receives in our culture. It may not be as great as it once was. And that is that there are very smart people who do other things besides having careers related to humanities or arts and sciences or teaching. You know, there are other kinds of technical kinds of fields that people are in. So that's a great advantage to give those fields the respect that they deserve so that we commend younger people for those kinds of careers. The other side of the coin is that over time, uh, the practical side tends to, if it's combined with the humanities side, the practical side tends to eat up the other great value of the university, which is educating people for functioning in the world, for thinking well for living well, and all of those other things. And we see that happening in universities today. You hear the discussion of STEM fields. Mm -hmm. STEM means uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And those things are what bring dollars to universities today because there's so much research going on in universities. You've probably heard stories about some schools where we send students where you're a second-class citizen if you're a student, but if you're involved in research, then you get a tremendous amount of attention in the institution. In fact, we've gotten to the point in our society where if you read the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is the, is the major organ for news in uh, colleges and universities in America today, you'll see lots of articles talking about the demise of the humanities. So uh, that means all those things they studied in the Middle Ages, the thing that brought about the university in the first place, the studies associated with those things to large, many of those things to a large extent, the debate is now, are those things even needed? 
Do we even need to study philosophy? Why study history? After all, history is, they say, is the story of the victors, not the truth, which, by the way, isn't true. I'd like a rebuttal to that at some point. Uh, why, why study these sorts of things? Because they aren't practical. They don't serve me. Uh, they don't help me get a job. They don't get research dollars. The poor guy over in the philosophy department, he makes a lot less than the professor in the engineering department. The guy in the engineering department they want to keep because he's the person who goes after the contra- government contracts for research. And that enriches the university. Whereas the poor old philosophy teacher, nobody's going to give him any money to teach Aristotle unless he can really be creative and come up with a project. So the dollars don't flow today toward those kinds, those kinds of things. And so for parents, I would say, here's the practical value. Don't be too impressed by the ranking of the university you're sending your student to, because the ranking or the reputation of the university doesn't necessarily reflect in the quality of the education that your student will get. The schools that are the best instruction aren't necessarily the ones that are on the U.S. News and Report Top 500. They're the ones that have professors who still teach the important things students are exposed to and uh, have, you know, have this belief that they are doing something to prepare people to really think and prepare for the world. You know, be well-educated. And also, uh, that means a personal relationship in some way, a face-to-face relationship and an influence that they can have. So let me try to summarize what I think you're saying uh, in terms of advice to parents. And this is obviously not one-size-fits-all. This would be a, a broad generalization. But in a, in a lot of cases, in general, it is wise to seriously consider, as a student goes off to do an undergraduate degree, not being wowed by the top 10, top 50 lists, because those tend to be universities that put all their time and money and emphasis on research and not teaching, but rather look at the smaller schools that focus on professors really being committed to teaching their students, having time for students, and whether it's office hours or other contexts, and helping them learn to love wisdom, love truth, grow in their field, and so on and so forth. When they then are looking toward the graduate level, that's when those rankings come into play, that emphasis on where are the all-star professors, because then they can go and do research with that person. Is Is that a good summary? That's a good summary, exactly what I was leading to, which is, hey, you can save yourself some money. <laughs> Economize. It doesn't make as much difference where they get their undergraduate anymore. Send them to a place where they can get good instruction and it costs less to get your BA, your bachelor's or your bachelor of science. Then make sure they're studying, they're good students, then they can get into a graduate school where that makes more difference. You know, save yourself all of those headaches when they're like 10, 11, 12, trying to get them into Harvard. Don't do that. Relax. Relax. Think about uh, a place that you can afford, they can afford, where they're going to get some attention. Mm, Interesting. So you're not saying not not to be worried about your kids' ACT or SAT scores, right? I mean, there's there's still things that need to be done to... To, to get into any good college. Well, that's another here. issue, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a different issue. Um, we'll say more about that then. Well, ACT and SAT scores, you know what they're designed to do. They're designed, they're supposed to say, 
be predictors about whether this person is going to have a successful career at the university. We've known for years that they don't really do that. I didn't find that there was a strong correlation between high test scores and how students did when I worked as a dean in a university. Sometimes students uh, don't do very well in those tests, they come to, but they come to college and then things click for them. Mm. I did well on the SAT, but you know, in my family, I wasn't considered a great student in high school. I was bored and I wasn't interested. My grades weren't very good. Well, when I got to the university, suddenly it clicked. And you know what it was? I had somebody who saw me and believed in me. It was the professor who made all the difference. Mm. Um, I'm not a dummy, but I could have, you know, I could have easily left, you know, if I felt that I was bored again or, you know, I wasn't a good fit or really for me, I needed that professor who was engaged enough to be able to see me and to care about me and really made all the difference. And it started because he inspired me in a lecture. He captured my imagination in a wonderful lecture that he gave. And so that changed my life completely. Were you aware that he was a Christian professor at the outset, or was he in other ways uh, just inspiring to you, and eventually his faith commitment became part of that conversation? I was told by people that he was a Christian, but the reason I took the class was because he's not just a Christian, he's an excellent professor who really cares about students. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. Because, you know, you can be a Christian and be boring and not very inspiring. And then they can walk across the hall, take another class from a Marxist and capture their attention. We need, we need more Christian professors, but we need these, we need them speaking in compelling ways that are interesting and capture the hearts and minds of, uh, of their students. Which I think is part of the call of, of, uh, of a professor in general, but a Christian professor in particular to be excellent as a teacher and excellent as a researcher and uh, excellent serving the students and colleagues that God has put them in touch with. So, yeah, so that, yeah, so that really, yeah, that really made the, the difference for me. Good. We will return to our discussion in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative or friend preparing to be or currently a university student? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to do just this. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more and see how you can be a part of equipping Christian professors to show Christ's love to students on a campus near you and worldwide. And now back to the show. There has been a shift in how the university not only sees the role of professors related to teaching and research, but a shift in terms of the university's understanding of its relationship to students. There used to be this general conception known as in loco parentis. Yeah, in the place of parents is what it means. In the place of parents. And, uh, and that is no longer the understanding of the university, though I think a lot of parents think it still is. Yes. So could you tell us what that idea was, how it's changed, and the results for a student going off to college these days? Well, I'll talk about it in the American context of, of what was expected. Okay. <clears throat> so, you know, up until the 20th century, there were not that many people going to college, and you're probably from a family of means. 
part of it was that institutions became places where families sent their students. And uh, they also, if they were prominent people, the university depended upon them to provide financial support so they could continue their mission. Even universities today, we see this. The same, the same kids go to the same institutions generation after generation. So in the 19th century, it was pretty important if you're a university, you wanted to make sure that those people were happy because they were your constituents. Mm-hmm. And so when they entrusted their young people to you, you had to make sure you took care of them. So you had rules, uh, you had ways of checking on them, and uh, you made sure that uh, you knew they were going to sow their wild oats occasionally, but you made sure that they had soft landings and uh, really took care of them. So that persisted into the 20th century. Many universities tended to continue to have that attitude. Well, for example, mine, it it still persisted because... um, all freshmen were required to live in the dorms the first year, even if you joined a fraternity or sorority. You live in the dorms, and so they could keep their eye on you for a year, uh, make sure that you didn't get into any trouble, didn't go too far astray. That was my university's policy as well. Yeah, and now that's I'd say to university students say that's ridiculous, and of course they separated. Uh, they had dorms for women and dorms for men, and they kept them separate. Uh, and when they did go coeducational, they had, well, okay, we got this high rise over here. The top three floors are for women. The top bottom seven are for men. And we make sure there's an elevator that goes just to those top three floors and not to the bottom six. So, you know, they're watching out for, for all of those things. Well, that really began to change. You know, it began to change slowly after World War II. They began, especially the Vietnam War, which is there was a big hue and cry about if 18-year-olds can go off to war, they can vote. That was a big thing. And that impacted the university. Well, if 18-year-olds can go off to war, then they're adults. You know, we're treating 18-year-olds as adults. And so it's just like what they call the old law diminishing returns. You just more give in more and more. And so eventually they just say, well, this is easier for us. We can't watch them. And in fact, we're going to provide them certain services and you can't, you have no right to know about them, mom and dad. Such as? you know, birth control, things related to providing those kinds of things and, uh, you know, other things that uh, become, you know, become private matters that, you know, families would have been able to get information about and now they can't any longer. Well, and a lot of universities won't even release, release grades to parents. Right. Without the student's permission, even if the parent is paying for the education. That's right. Now, what you do when they get home is you know, you have to have that. You have to be pretty wise to figure that out. How you're going to do that? Because you don't want to pour money down a black hole, now, do you? Right. And of course, that's what's happening. What and, and and result is that plenty of students go off to the university who can't cut it. And the university's attitude now is: it used to be one that retention was such a huge thing for university. If you had somebody come in as a freshman, you want to do everything you could to make sure they got to the finish line. And that was related to in loco parentis. You it was your reputation. So now I don't see that as a, as big a concern. It's like they come and go. Well, let's talk a little bit about the professors that uh, students will encounter. And you've talked about people like your mentor who will love them, care for them, teach them well, invest in them, mentor and nurture them. Uh, of course, there are others who, who won't. And uh, right. Some will actually seek to 
have a negative influence on their students, and uh, sometimes that involves the students' faith. Why, why do so, so many, it, it seems, or increasingly at least, a uh, number of professors have pretty radical ideas, or at least strange ideas, related to the historical commitments to truth and rationality and even, even biblical ideas of, of past generations? Well, I think that it, up until the 20th century, there was sort of a consensus about what they were about. Well-educated meant being exposed to humanities. It meant uh, being good citizens. Uh, it meant that uh, supporting the democratic ideals of the United States of America. I think um, we, we see is in World War II, we had something uh, that came about that changed everything that was called the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. You probably have. It's called the GI Bill. Oh, of course. Sure. So uh, basically the GI Bill had a range of benefits for service people who were coming back from World War II. And what happened is in 1940, there were about 1.4 million university students. That was just before United States involvement in World War II. Then, of course, you had the World War II. There's probably a decline in enrollment because of World War II. And then after World War II, you have the implementation of the early implementation of the GI Bill, which eventually 7.6 million veterans took advantage of through the 1950s. The benefit was if you served in World War II, the government paid for the majority of your educational tuition expenses and uh, your living expenses. So that what happened is, and the reason they did it is because after World War I, there was no plan for veterans who came back from World War I, and there were riots in the mm. 20s and 30s because these people came back from serving in the war in Europe and had no jobs. They had, uh, the government didn't come through with the, the monetary payments on their pensions and things like that. And so these people were unemployed, starving. They couldn't do anything. So it was actually during when World War II broke out, the organization called the American Legion, there were a lot of people, the American Legion, who began to think, when we win this war, we don't want to turn out the way World War I did. We want veterans to have benefits. And so they advocated and advocated for, for more than two years, and eventually Congress passed the GI Bill in 1944. And so when the war was over, Lots of these people who before, if World War II hadn't come about, many of them would have no prospects for the university. And a lot of these people took advantage of it. And by the way, a lot of them would have had this story that when they decided to go to college, they were the first people in their family to get college educations. And so what happened is we see this big influx of really smart people who are from the working classes instead of from the patrician classes that previously had been part of higher education. They had very different ways of viewing the world. And they tended to be of a certain political caste because that's what they grew up with. And they tended to become these really smart people, then got their own PhDs, and they tended to become the people who were present in universities. And that didn't mean they were weird. It just, but it meant that something called college tenure came about in a stronger way that it meant that you had certain hoops you had to jump through, but once you did, your job was secure. So that was the first generation of these people emerging in the 1950s and 60s 
who are becoming teachers and they have very different views of the world. All right. Now, before you go on, let me make sure I understand. You're saying that even that first wave were folks who returning from the second world world war would have had a bit more what progressive attitudes on things than others. Yeah, probably. Yeah. That, that doesn't square with what I understand just historically of GIs who were loyal men and women who went and served their country. So help me put those two together. Oh, these were loyal people who believed in democracy, but they had a, they had more of a, fl- a flexible view, probably what we call a flexible view. There were some good things. There were good things that they were bringing to the table too. One of the bad things that happened, and there are many bad things that began to happen. One of the bad things that happened was uh, they got control of the hiring process in the university. The people who teach your children are not people who necessarily teach on the basis of merit or follow what uh, whoever supports the university says, or even the parents. They're people who are hired by other people in, their, in the departments where the job opened up, and they may be hired for a variety of reasons. Many of them hire them because they like the way they think. They think just like them. The way I noticed this working out in the university where I was teaching as an adjunct was that I was from, I was a native of the state, and nobody who was from my state was hired in my department at the state university. It was all people from elsewhere who came in, who had ideas about things similar to the people who were hiring them. Of course, there was a benefit to me, Stan, because my students continually said to me, we like you because you're like us. And I thought, well, that's a funny thing to say. What do you mean? They say, well, you talk like us. You, you anticipate what we think because you're, like, you're a person from where we're from. And we like these other people, but they're not, they're different. We don't really get them. Those kinds of things begin to have a negative impact. Mm. That's right. And I would add one little thing too, a little footnote here. Okay. And we've been talking about the university, right? It doesn't mean that, oh, I'm going to give up and just send my kids to Christian university. I hope that's not the takeaway. The idea of the university is a good one. Because the idea of a university is a place where it, we can be uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable and to hear uh, discussions of things that you don't agree with, as long as everybody is in the, in the business of pursuing truth and understanding in reasonable ways. So university can be a great place to be, but you just have to be prepared you have to be prepared that to engage in that. You have to be able to think. You have to know what you believe. You have to know the reasons why you believe it. You need to have a background in logical thinking because university professors, when you get outside the philosophy department, use lots of invalid arguments. You can evaluate. You don't be intimidated just because they're really smart people. You know, you can evaluate what they're saying, whether they're spoofing you because remember a, a, a logical fallacy is a trick. It's something that people use to fool you into thinking that, that they're good reasons for what they're saying. And they're, when they're really not very good reasons. So Liam, you've talked about the 
tendency of universities to shift to more and more of a focus on skill development and almost a trade school mentality in some cases, in an extreme case. Uh, but there's also uh, a movement or, or a number of universities that have gone to the other end of that continuum that, that are focusing on or are even offering exclusively great books programs. Can you say a few words about that type of university and what the pros and cons are for parents thinking about that, uh, that approach to education? There's still a great cultural advantage to people who know what happened in the past and are familiar with the great literature of the past. Those people are the ones who are sought out uh, in difficult times for a reference point. Those kinds of colleges, I think, have a lot to commend them. This is not an advertisement because there are some downsides. For one thing, if if you're going to to go into a vocation where, for example, you're going to go into a STEM field, uh, you're going to have to get more education because you can predict what would happen at a great books university. What they would do is if you're going to do, you're going to reproduce great experiments of the past, but you're not going to necessarily do research for the, you know, research for the future. So they're great for having a well-educated person who's going to go on to something else, but don't think that that's going to, if you have a vocational view to education, don't think that that's going to solve all the issues or give them everything that they need to be able to do. And do say a little bit about the distinction between a college and a university. An institution can call itself whatever it wants. But if you're accredited, you know, you have to work with an accrediting association and you start to call yourself a university, by golly, you better have a graduate program operating. Generally, that's supposed to be the distinction now in in higher education in the U.S. But help our listeners then understand why universities also have various colleges. So you'll have the College of Business and the College of Arts and Science and so on. What does that mean? It's become now a way of organizing the university into different parts so, it's, so they're manageable. And so they put like things together in colleges or schools, especially at state universities where they primarily were engaged with agriculture and engineering. So they had the agriculture faculty over there with all the different departments of agriculture, departments within the school, the engineering colleges over here with all its different kinds of engineering. And then later when they added arts and sciences or humanities, then it just made sense for them to have their own school, their own dean, and their own departments. And it really makes sense within arts and sciences, doesn't it? Because political science and anthropology, you know, are very different. Uh, But they're departments under the same organizational structure there as well. That's helpful. And I'm glad you just mentioned organizational structure, because I think you can speak to that as well. Having served in the organizational structure at different levels and roles in the university, what is the structure? We think of a professor in the classroom, in the lab, who does he or she report to? What's the hierarchy? If a student or a parent has a concern and they're not getting traction with their professor, is there someone else to go to up the line? Yeah, the way that works is that an individual professor teaches in a department. The head of the department is called the department chair. Feel sorry for the poor person who does it because no one's happy with them. They only get to teach one course a semester. 
They don't get to do as much research. They have to police the other members of the department to make sure they're doing what they're doing, that they're on track for tenure, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that also include arbitrating concerns of students if they feel they're not getting fair treatment by a professor? Is that the person that the student would go to? I would say so. Yeah. I would say go to the department chair and then they would raise the concern with the professor and and however, whatever their due process system is at the particular university is how they're going to pursue student complaints beyond that. With the departments then over the departments are the administrative people within the college Uh, you're in a philosophy department, it would be then the dean. The dean has usually has an assistant or an associate dean that works with them that is sort of like the vice principal in the high school. They're the people who get to do all the dirty work, and the dean kind of maintains vision. The buck stops with the dean of of the college. So you have the college that has all the departments in it, and of that, philosophy is just one. And all of those departments have their own department chairs, and they're all answer to the dean of the college. And, and so that's where a department chair would elevate a concern if it can't be dealt with adequately at the department level. Yes, that's right. What gets confused in all this, Stan, is you have other departments serving the students too, like student services. We have student deans. You can go, if you need a shoulder to cry on, go to the student dean, and they can guide you through the process. So if you think, oh, no, I'm intimidated. I don't want to go talk to that professor who's the, who's the chairman of the department. Go to student services, and they can guide you through the process and maybe even provide you some advocacy. Because most of the problems are not necessarily going to be academic concerns. You know, they're going to be living concerns, whatever happens on campus. So you can see how it would divide out. But if it is an academic concern, you're, you're, you're not being treated fairly in the classroom or there's a viewpoint discrimination, then it's the department chair that is the first, the first line of defense. Right. And there are other ways, too. There are all kinds of ways to approach this, too. You have, and the student has a major, probably, and they have an advisor. So probably my first stop would be I go talk to my advisor, they're an academic advisor and tell them, okay, show me the ropes. Where do I go from here? And then they're going to send you to that department if you have an academic concern, because the student may not be majoring in whatever that department is. They maybe have a major in a different department or even a different school altogether. They're just taking a course. Mm -hmm. So you, you have all kinds of ways that you can approach it. They have all kinds of access to, they have their academic advisors They have the uh, department chairs. They have student services people. And anyone, they all work together, theoretically. Any one of those could guide you to the proper place you should go for whatever the concern is. Okay, good. That's very helpful. I appreciate that. Where can listeners go to get more information on any of the things you've mentioned today? I would just say... um, Uh, go to Amazon and look up books on um, either informal logic or identifying logical fallacies. Mm. I think there may be even some Christian versions of that because being able to identify invalid arguments is really important. So you can find some of those on Amazon. Is there a place where we can list some of those? Yeah, actually in the show notes, I'll, I'll list a few. There's one by Norm Geisler that I find very helpful and he uses a lot of really good examples of fallacies. Yeah. And Norman Geisler is one of my old professors. That'd be a great one. Stick in there. So there's a dearth of resources in this area. 
And uh, this is really important business that we're talking about. So we need to get more of those uh, resources out to uh, out to parents and to students. Well, thanks, Liam. I appreciate your time and the insights you provided. I uh, am always uh, encouraged by and challenged by your your thoughts and our conversation. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I just appreciate what you're trying to do and uh, encourage the listeners to uh, listen to this program regularly. You'll learn some, some great things from wiser minds than mine. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education helps you or someone you love flourish in both heart and mind during the university years. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stan W. Wallace. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to learn how you can be a part of creating lasting change in higher education worldwide. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of the show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps a lot. And finally, I encourage you to pass this show on to your friends or others you think would enjoy hearing our conversation. So until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.